Here it felt that there is something different. It felt like in the market where as a tiny team you can create something. So it was more like, well, you know what? There is no other choice. So let's just like go this path and hope that everything is going to be aligned. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, we're very excited to welcome Zeb Farbman to the show. Zeb is the co-founder and CEO of Lightrix, the company behind multiple award-winning apps, all of which are centered around the creator economy. Back during a time when content creation and editing tools were only available to professionals, Lightrix made them accessible to the average smartphone user in 2013 with one of their earliest apps, Facetune which became an overnight success in the selfie generation. Since then, Lightrix app suites with leading apps like Facetune 2, Video Leap, and Photo Leap have been downloaded over 600 million times worldwide. Last year, Lightrix saw a very successful Series D round of funding where they raised 130 million, bringing the valuation to 1.9 billion. And with exciting new apps, creator services, and equity partners on the horizon, as well as their recent acquisition of popular pays, Lightrix isn't showing any signs of slowing down. Today, we'll be talking to Zev about how his company was able to tap into the young market of content creators alongside the biggest social media apps, as well as the challenges of consistently being number one. Zev, welcome to Founder Real Talk. We're excited to have you. I'm very excited to be here, and thank you very much for such a kind and thorough introduction. I mean, I couldn't do it any better. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should hire your services to present. <laughs> definitely doing a great job at that. Uh, thank you. Well, we're going to put you on the hot seat, so you may not be happy with me for long. I wanted to start with going back in your career. Both of your parents were engineers, machine electronic engineers. Do you think you caught the computer science bug from them, or... Was it something that you found yourself that you were drawn to while you were in the army or, or, or elsewhere? Well, you know, like definitely not for them because I actually never got too deeply into electronics, although my dad made a bunch of attempts to kind of excite me around like these things. I think at some point when I was eight or nine, I just like I saw like really a pocket calculator, not even a personal computer. And uh, to me, like it was like this magical moment where I felt, well, there should be some kind of intelligence inside here because I'm just like typing like this seemingly hard uh, arithmetical problems that <laughs> giving some instant numbers. So I was just like sitting playing with the, the calculator. Soviet Union was obviously like really lagging behind in terms of personal computer, etc. But at some point, I a personal computer, and then I just told my parents, "Listen, guys, like I just." <laughs> It's magic. Need to have it. So my first personal computer when I was, I think, 10 or 11 was a Russian. It's called Electronica BK. Like something really kind of unusual, but this time it's like a really museum piece. But that was my first PC with a bunch of manuals. So in the beginning, it was like really kind of a solitary thing because in the village where I was raised, no one was actually too deep into that. Once we immigrated to, to Israel, yeah, I had obviously a ton of peers to learn from. It was a really different environment. Well, you mentioned, you know, your background coming from 
the former Soviet Union as a kid uh, before immigrating to Israel. Any recollections of what that was like and maybe any inspiration you draw from your time in the former Soviet Union that has sort of led to your career today? Well, I mean, I have obviously an endless stories from these times. We immigrated to Israel when I was like almost 13. So that's definitely enough time to kind of build a stack of memories. So I was born in Ukraine, actually. And when I was uh, six, my parents moved to an area in Russia, in Soviet Union, that's called Yakutia. It's actually near Alaska. So if you want to test your knowledge of geography, that's definitely <laughs> can stretch it a little bit. And in the background, it's like a Soviet Union collapsed and things changed pretty quickly, right? So it was definitely an unusual time. But actually, like in Yakutia, was growing like in a really kind of shielded environment. Somehow my parents magically were create like this appearance of stability in the really unstable environment. So... Frankly, like I have a ton of good memories from childhood. I was spending a lot of time go like hunting with my dad, and it was like kind of really felt magical. That said, I think like as uh, many former Soviet Union immigrants, <laughs> I have some deeply rooted skepticism around things like central planning, etc. <laughs> that might have been affected also how we do things around uh, light tricks. Got it. Fast forwarding the light tricks, I want to ask you about Facetune, which. I think you launched in 2013 and it was, it was a massive success kind of like coupled with the selfie trend that was really emerging. Then take us back to that moment. Was it planned? Was it just a happy accident? How did this come to be? Cause it was really quite a phenomenon. There is like a really deep philosophical question folded here around like accidents versus any kind of wheel operating in the world. But <laughs> let's work with the operating assumption is that accidents are Kind of more likely to happen if you're doing certain things, right? Like, so let's frame it this way. So, but even before FaceTime, like taking like another step back, before that, with the co founders of Lightrix, we spent a lot of time in academia. I was kind of already completing my PhD in computer science and starting to plan where I'm going to do a postdoc. And I really was focused on my academic career. I mostly cared about kind of publishing academic papers, make sure that they're making their way in kind of top venue in computer graphics and image processing. That's what uh, most of my research was about. And I like really never thought about myself as an entrepreneur. I didn't have a deep interest in startups. I really envisioned myself being like a tenured professor. It seemed like a great career to me. And what made me to even consider opportunities outside of academia was our CTO, Yaron, who at some point joined our lab. And we started to kind of collaborate in the beginning. I was mentoring him on his like master's uh, project. And then uh, like we published a paper together. And really like working with him just like felt magical because I knew really experienced people uh, in the industry. I had spent some time in the research team in Microsoft and in Adobe, etc. Is but Yaron felt to me just like really kind of another level of programmer, right? Like he could, let's say we were like thinking about all kind of algorithmic ideas in computer graphics that frankly I wouldn't be able to implement in a reasonable kind of span of time myself. Yaron was just like picking up these ideas coming up next day with like some working prototype. So I kind of felt that there are like 10 people working with me on the same project, and it felt great. At some point, we were in, so immersed in one of our academic projects, we kind of tried to change how, like, illumination is working in computer games. We were, like, working really hard. We forget about the external world. We're living 
our computer science lab like really late at night and it kind of landed itself to a lot of <laughs> deep existential conversations. So at some point your own maybe almost joke he told me listen if you were like working so hard outside of academia we would be millionaires by now. And you know funnily enough like this like tiny remark I think kind of shifted something for me, right? Like a I think for, for the first time I considered, well, you know, like maybe there is something outside of academia. Maybe the things that we are working on here, they're pretty applicable probably to a lot of problems in the real world, in the industry. So maybe there is something there. And it happened with the advent of mobile. And well, I guess iPhone was already around for a while. But uh, what started to happen, we started to see like image processing software, like image processing apps. Kind of coming to mobile, like really simple apps in the beginning, like back then, Instagram filters were maybe <laughs> the most sophisticated image processing piece on the, on the iPhone. But at some point, we noticed like more mature apps are coming. So in 2011, Snapseed became Apple's app of the year on the iPad, and this piece of software like really impressed us. We also kind of had the fortune to know like one of the founders of the company because they wanted to acquire a patent from our lab where. We were like one of the co-authors of the patent. Anyhow, long story short, it was like a combination of like this realization that there is a life outside of the academia and exactly the right point of time where you kind of start to realize, wait a second, it seems to be like really kind of fast growing market where as a hobbyist, you can still do something meaningful, right? Because if you're looking at the content creation software at large, these days it's really dominated by a giant, right? Like you can claim that, you know, like, between Adobe and Autodesk and, uh, you know, like these guys, there is like a ton of space for huge businesses, for content creation tools for professionals, right? For sure, you know, like there are opportunities to create all kinds of things and there are opportunities for disruption, etc. But these companies are like really, really know what they're doing. Here, it felt that there is something different. It felt like in the market where it's, a, you know, like a, as a tiny team, you can make an impact and create something. So at some point, we like really reached out to our PhD advisors and told them, listen, guys, we feel that there is an opportunity here. Maybe just give us an option to work kind of part-time on some kind of commercial project. We basically want to create an app. We don't know what it's going to be. And in the beginning, our PhD advisors were actually pretty excited about the idea. But after a week, they came back to us and one of their advisors, like Professor Anand Fatal, told us something that we actually still use at Lightrix. He coined like this term, at least for us, he called like the shower test. So tell us, listen, guys, as a researcher, when you're coming back at home, like from a busy day to your lab and you're going to shower, there's going to be like this, like one thing that you're going to care deeply enough to keep thinking in the shower. You can't split your shower time into, right? So like you can't split your heart. You need to have like this one passion in life that you're like really focused about. And while it was annoying while he was saying that, when we discussed it like between future group of co-founders, co-founders, we realized that there is a lot of truth in what he's saying. Because back then, already like Yaron and I were like stretched across kind of multiple projects. Yaron was collaborating with Google on something, and I was doing some project around animation with Adobe, and we tried to work on like rendering games, etc. Like really, like a ton of different things, and realized, well, you know what? He's actually right. 
But our conclusion from the Sharp test was completely different from what our PhD advisor envisioned. We, we, we decided that, yeah, like we need to focus, but we're going to focus on, on this new thing, right? And that obviously wasn't the conclusion that our PhD advisor was looking for. for. So for a while, it was you know, kind of, it strained our relationship a little bit. And again, this people who we care deeply about because we learned like a ton from them, right? And I kind of remember one of them told me at some point, he just like showed me an iPhone with an app store and he showed me like the ranking of the paid apps and the top top rank paid app like in Israel was some, like I hope it's okay to say it on the podcast, but it was some kind of like this poop app, like with emoji that does something. <laughs> it, it was really something about <laughs> about that and it'll release on like you're putting like all that you build all your academic career so far on hold for that okay so that's how they saw it we saw something different like we really thought that well with time people will figure out how to leverage mobile in order to be creative we obviously did know how it's going to exactly going to be so kind of circling back to your question Facing wasn't like that immediate idea in the beginning, right? It was more like this sense of opportunity. There's like something cool that's going on. We want to be a part of that. We have no idea it's going to be a big business. Like who knows, you know? But it just like felt there's like something unique at this point of time. We like really enjoy working together as a team. Like we knew each other for a while. So I mentioned your own, but one of the other founders near, I he was my best friend since army days and. I meet another co-founder was Yaron's commander in the army. Anyhow, we were like really close, new group of friends. So we decided, well, you know what? It's worth a shot. Worst case, we're going to have like this amazing experience working together and we're going to try to find our way back to academia or whatever that's going to be. So we decided to just like leave academia uh, behind. And then we started to think, what's our first product is going to be? Snaps had really inspired us as the product. And Google bought the company back then. Like the company was like, the name was Nick Software. So we actually felt, well, there's like an opportunity to maybe create like even better snaps now, right? We're obviously going to run faster than like a huge corporate Google. But we didn't want to immediately compete with Snapseed. We wanted something smaller for our initial first product. And we started just like to play with different prototypes while we learned iOS and mobile programming. And we were just like giving our friends have these prototypes to play with. And one of the prototypes, not even like the, actually like technically it wasn't like a very sophisticated prototype. It was basically implementation of like liquefied tool that existed in Photoshop for, I don't know, like 20 years that allows you to kind of tweak the contours of the image. We implemented it on mobile and someone loaded like a photo of a person's face and just like we saw like the user or like what one of our friends playing with this prototype changing the sh- shape of their nose and we just like saw the reaction because all other prototypes what we gave to, to the people so far people were like, okay cool because again like these prototypes were interesting to us for example we we're like really passionate about like this idea of trying to get a better night photography right and you can do it like by shooting like multiple exposures and technically it's really cool you need to align images you need to reduce noise etc so from academic perspective it's like a really cool project but no one was terribly excited about that 
uh, we kind of, you know, like about the specific prototype, our pitch to people was, listen, guys, you can now go to parties and take uh, pictures at night. But when we actually <laughs> give it to people who, unlike us, go to parties, they tell us, listen, if I take an image and it doesn't look good, I just take another image. <laughs> Why do I need an app that's going to fix an image, right? That was a, like already like a cool example how we can do like a huge mismatch between your area of interest and what, what the users want. So anyhow, we saw the reaction to this like initial prototype that with time became like reship tool in Facetune, and then it dawned on us this idea that if we take Photoshop level capabilities and make them available to everyone, that could be interesting in the age of Instagram and selfies, etc. So we started to work on Facetune, and again, like while we were working on it, the whole idea was to generate hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> that was the number from this app in order to do kind of more serious development on something that's going to be snaps it on steroids. Like we were already then we like uh, started to think about our second product that was in light, the kind of way bigger one. It became Apple's Apple of the year, but like that's like still a long time in the future. Anyhow, that's how Facing came to be. It was like this initial product to learn on US development to figure out what users like, what users dislike. And I guess we were mistaken by three orders of magnitude uh, about like the potential success of Facebook, at least from a financial perspective. You were very open to and paid a lot of attention to how people were using your technology, which sounds like it kind of guided you in the right direction. Obviously, so Facetune exploded, your business exploded, and things went really, really well. I want to fast forward from that because in 2016, a couple of years later, you changed the business model. You were selling the app, right? Back when that was a pretty common thing to do and you were making lots of revenue doing so with, you know, you're selling the applications you'd built. But then you moved from paid apps to subscription model. And I'm curious, like, what transpired that led you to that shift and how hard was that? Because you were already, already doing quite a bit of revenue. And business model shifts are hard. Paul, how did you completely agree with the last sentence? Okay, so the year was 2015. We already had like two apps in the App Store. And they constantly were in the top page ranks in the App Store in the US. So it was Facetune and Enlight. And we got to like this year to something like $10 million in revenues, which is, again, it was great for a bootstrap company. We didn't have any investors back then. But we started to realize that like, there is like no way that we can scale this thing to, for example, $100 million in revenues. And besides the revenue factor, we also kind of realized that in order kind of to scale the operation and like really pursue all these creative ideas that we had around what can be done on mobile in terms of content creation, we just like, can't justify all that with like this scale of revenue, right? Because again, like, $10 million sounds cool for a bootstrap operation of, I don't know, like 15 to 20 people, right? Like you're not going to be able to have 40 PhDs working on the kind of next generation of computer graphics and image processing algorithms. So we realized like we, we need to change something. And we started to look at kind of different business models like pay-per-use and freemium. And freemium was already available on the App Store with in-app purchases. It worked amazingly well for gaming, but no one was able to really make it work in other domains, especially not in our domain of content creation tools. Again, like a lot of people try to sell like packs of filters, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it wasn't big enough to justify development on the next scale. 
So at some point, we realized that we need to make like a huge bet here and just kind of hope and pray that at some point the platform will open subscription as a model on the App Store. Uh, when we had our initial conversations with our dev relationship people in Apple, they didn't know exactly where they're coming from. So it, it was like a kind of huge bet, but we realized it, it needs to happen. And we also were lucky to find the investors in Israel, like Viola Ventures and Danny Coyne, who was the first kind of person on our board outside of the founders, that like really believe that something is going to happen. And back then, it was really like a huge bet. A lot of people still didn't see mobile, mobile as kind of viable platform of content creation. So it was more more like, well, you know what? There is no other choice. So let's just like go this path and hope that everything is going to be aligned. And it was pretty Artist journey of two years living in this limbo where you're not sure that it's going to come. And yeah, at some point, the thinking in Apple, I guess, changed. So when Phil Schiller in 2016, before WWDC that year, decided to give like this exclusive interview to The Verge, it's called App Store 2.0. Apple already like reached out to us and told me, listen, guys, we know that you're like all this kind of cool plans around content creation tools that you create for creators. We also care deeply about creators. We want to signal that's exactly the kind of software we want to see with this new business model. So we kind of uh, had some heads up that something is going to change. And we were like part of this interview. So I would say for us, like at some point in 2016, we realized, yeah, it was a reason about at least in terms of it's going to be available as a business model at all. After that, again, it's obviously was still a process because like really saying perpetual licenses, paid apps, it's like very, very different from running consumer subscription business in terms of metrics, in terms of how you think about your marketing spend, et cetera, et cetera. So I, <laughs> I can talk a lot about this process, but like if there is like a message that I need to pass to our entrepreneurs is that like really, if you kind of do the math and you realize that you hit <laughs> the ceiling, you're probably going to hit the ceiling, right? So it's better to start figuring out these things earlier rather than later. Don't stick your head in the sand, confront it. And you you guys really transitioned the business, you know, pretty much exclusively to subscription at that time. Were there some people on your team who had trouble making that shift? How did you deal with that massive change that you have to engineer internally? I would say we had second thoughts around that or some kind of conversations. <laughs> and I don't know if on a daily basis, but probably on the weekly basis. Also, like imagine while you're undergoing these transitions, there are like some acquisitions offers that are coming, right? Like it was like a very kind of a hot time where a lot of kind of big platforms wanted to acquire like this team with image processing and computer vision expertise, etc. So we got like more of the than one offer and by then it was already kind of more than hundred million dollars like in like in enterprise value that people kind of suggested to pay etc and again like the company was almost entirely ours so it required kind of a lot of I don't know what what even to call it right like if I kind of circle back I think we in the end of the day just like really enjoyed working together. We believe that there is kind of a bigger opportunity on the table. We didn't know what shape exactly it's going to take, right? Like we didn't know, like obviously the details of the consumer subscription, mobile, etc. So 
like I really think what kind of carries you through like these more challenging times, at least that, that's worked for us, but we really enjoyed working together. We believe that we're building a cool stuff, that the market is growing. And at some point, the stars are going to be aligned. Like when I'm saying it now, it doesn't sound like super reasonable, but somehow I guess it was convincing enough back then. So. That's a moment with a, lo- a lot of founders face where they're excited about what they're doing. And then, you know, somebody else will come and also be excited and say, hey, we'll, we want to acquire the business. It's financially can be quite meaningful to people. And it's a tough decision. I like your analogy of the, the shower test. I'm assuming you guys were taking your showers and just too excited about the future to give it up. Well, you know, like there is another thing maybe that played the factor. And again, I don't know if it was a luck or accident or whatever, but since we were already like a, we were like a profitable company when Viola invested, it was 2015. So we didn't, even like for a transition for a premium model, we didn't think that we need like a ton of capital, right? So we did like half of the round was secondary back then. And these days, like no one cares about, you know, like this things anymore, like with all these like crazy rounds, et cetera. But back then it was kind of a pretty unique thing in Israel that I think like uh, raised a lot of eyebrows here. And what we kind of told everyone, listen, guys, it's actually for you as a venture capitalist kind of is a great strategy, right? Like the problem in Israel is back in the day, I think it's less of the issue now was actually that a lot of the founders were selling promising businesses early on, right? Because they never did the secondary. They're working on something for 10 years without uh, much to show it this financially. Yeah, so I think the fact that we you know, did some dividend in the beginning from the profits and did some secondary uh, was actually very meaningful, right? Because uh, we, I think, realized there are like diminishing returns to your personal wealth as well, right? Like uh, once you're not starving, <laughs> things aren't that bad if you think about it, right? So I think that that was also like a factor that helped us here in this time. Uh, that's a good point. Well, so speaking of, you know, shifts, you've talked about recognizing that like there's another big shift underway for you guys in your user base now towards the creator economy. And you're shifting your business from being like a tools maker to more of a creator platform. And I'm curious, like that's another big shift. And what's giving you conviction that this is the right thing to do? How have you guys, you know, come to that conclusion? And how has it shifted your thinking about, you know, the future of Lightrix? Okay, so that's like way more real time of the story. We're still going to see how that's going to unfold. But like in, in terms of thinking, maybe I will mention two things here, right? Like when we run the numbers at the moment and, okay, like the consumer subscription in our case kind of carried us to like maybe like hundreds of million dollars in revenues. And we still believe that in the next couple of years, you can probably scale, I don't know, like 30, 40% year of the year, something like that. But you already kind of start to see when you analyze the business, not only your business, also you're really taking into account the competitors and their growth rates, et cetera. You realize that like this business model isn't going to be like billions in revenues, right? And if you still like want to find the trajectory, how to grow, like really extend from where you're standing, like you, you really need to figure out that, right? And besides like, again, like the pure revenue factor, There is like something magical in growth. It helps you to attract like best people. It gives everyone like something kind of cool to look forward to, et cetera. And you kind of start to realize, well, the the current business model is cool, but you really need to decide. 
if you're like switching to this mode where like I don't know, starting to kind of look almost like a mid-sized public company, hundred million dollar revenues. It's one thing, it requires a certain mindset, right? You start to build and package your business towards it. I feel perhaps like it's cool, but as a public company, you're probably not going to have an opportunity to try to grow X10 with another set of them, right? Like it's easier to do it as a private company. It's easier to convince like your investors that's like a cool opportunity here. So like one kind of part of the answer is that just like you look at the numbers, you look at the competitors, you start to realize what kind of the scope of opportunity of a current business is. And that's maybe even can be considered some kind of downside thinking, right? We're seeing well. Another like part of the story is that yet again, I think we're starting to realize that there is like this huge wave that's coming that we can be a part of, right? Like when we started the company, like this wave was a kind of moment in general. It just came and it shifted how people create content, consume content, and they change like a thousand other things. So we were able to ride this wave. With consumer subscription against a similar story, the platforms, their business became like around mobile became mature enough. So it allows to ride this wave. And with creators economy, it seems perhaps the biggest kind of wave so far, because when you look at the numbers, when you see these data points about what like teenagers in the US are excited about, like what kind of career they envision themselves, right? Like, so some people are laughing that more than 50% answer that they want to be YouTube influencers, but it's actually not a laughing matter, right? Like there is like a class of people or group of people that really try to make a different kind of living, right? And we really believe that we're like in a starting point of this phenomenon. And again, like it's, it's a long-term phenomenon. It started with an advent of internet. The creator's economy wasn't exactly invented today, but we see that now uh, things are like really picking up. When we're talking to our users, when we're running service, when we see how they use the app, what's the intent they're coming to us from, we realize, well, there is a bigger opportunity on the table. Our users are already like, using a ton of different services in creator's economy. And, well, we can be kind of a bigger part of that. So like a year and a half ago, we created this team that we called it like 100X that started to map the opportunity for us, right? Like we really kind of tried to figure out, okay, if we're not only a toolmaker anymore, like what's the place for Lightrix as a company? We kind of realized that at the moment, actually, I don't know, it's a strong claim, but you don't have a company that's like really completely aligned with the creator and helps them to succeed kind of every step of the way, right? If you think about like the platforms that obviously are going to be a big part of this game and they're going to offer them services and tools, et cetera, et cetera. In the end of the day, platforms are misaligned with creators, right? And creators start to realize that they understand that they are the engagement driver of the social media platforms, but... The platforms expect them to basically do kind of side gigs with brands in order to, uh, to to get paid, right? So I think it's, again, like an interesting situation where like this big wave coming and there are like a ton of open questions that no one can answer at the moment, right? When you look at the activity in the space, like in creator's economy, I don't think at the moment someone can like show you like these clear lines between what's going to be like a platform business where all the opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But we kind of realize, well, we have the top of the funnel of creators, right? They, they, we already know how to attract them like in really big numbers and to onboard them on our platform. So the question kind of becomes more how, first of all, you onboard them to additional services. And second, how you change the business model 
So you're not kind of less vulnerable to a platform risk, right? Because obviously platforms can offer a ton of these things in like creators economy space completely for free, right? Because can uh, different incentives. So like it took a while to think about these things and convince ourselves that there is an opportunity here. But at some point, I guess we either figured something out that just became uh, collectively deluded here at Lightrix and realized, well, there is something on the table. Let's pursue it. Very cool. Well, it'll be exciting to see how it all works out for you. And appreciate you walking us through kind of your real-time decision-making about where to take the business. Zev, we're at that time of the episode where we're going to put you on the hot seat and ask you some speed round questions. So just, you know, say the first thing that comes to mind. What book or article do you recommend for founders? Oh my God. My mind is blank for founders. Listen, like it's actually, it's not going to be something about business, but more about how to handle stress. Okay. So maybe some cool book about how to sleep really well and breathe really well. (laughs) I think these are very (laughs) underutilized skills or under kind of appreciate skills in business. And, and I'm actually not kidding. Like at some point, that's something we realize here, like sleep well, a lot of things will somehow figure themselves out after that. Nothing beats a good night's sleep. Okay. What advice would you give to a young Zev knowing what you know now? So I think I'm like, I'm a kind of a problematic person for, for a hot seat, right? Like uh, <laughs> mine is becoming blank and then just like kind of realize, whoa, what a cool journey it was, right? Like a ton of ups and downs, but you know, like changing something, it's just going to be another story, right? So I don't know, like, <laughs> no, like if I like really have to answer something, it's mostly going to be around that, right? I think at least for me, I think like when I was younger, I kind of overappreciated the kind of the personal impact that you can do and underappreciated the kind of environment, right? Like Because in, in the end of the day, when we're looking at these success stories and like founders that are mega successful, like we somehow like to build like this really kind of nice and fluffy stories around them. But uh, in the end of the day, if you want to create like a super successful course, it's going to be around kind of leverage opportunities that are coming around, right? So it's probably going to be something around that. Got it. Okay, last one for you. You're deep into jujitsu. At least before COVID. Before COVID. Tell us about that obsession and what moves you like or submissions you like to do. Oh, wow. So Nir, my friend from the army, introduced me to Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I started to train seriously during my PhD. Like the the lifestyle of PhD student actually really allowed me to train hard, to compete, etc. It was really cool. Why? I don't know. Like it's... Sometimes during like these fights, I was getting to this like crazy flow states where like nothing bothers you, <laughs> although you're fighting, right? Like I know that a lot of people do not associate it like wrestling with dancing, but for me, sometimes felt felt like that. So it, I was extremely passionate about that, and yeah, it was like a, a ton of fun. Awesome, great. Well, Zev, thank you so much for spending some time with us and telling us about the the Light Tricks journey. It's been pretty remarkable and contrasted with many of the other founders we've had on Founder Real Talk. It's really remarkable to see how agile you've been in, you know, continuing to shift the business in a very fast changing market. You've been really smart about staying ahead of the trends and continuing to build a great company. We'll keep our eyes on it and wish you all the best in this new transition and hope that things continue to go as well as they have for you up till now. Thanks so much. That's a very charitable way to position our story and our efforts so far. But thank you for that. It was a pleasure being here. Great. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme music is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across social internet, enterprise tech, and smart tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $9.2 billion in capital across the U.S., Canada, China, Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, and Israel. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Big Commerce, Grab, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, Zendesk, and many more. The firm has offices in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Singapore, Shanghai, and Beijing. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at at ggvcapital.com.